0: Hello and welcome to this talk from Hersham Baptist Church. My name is Phil, I'm the pastor of the church here. It's great to have you with us. If you're new here or this is your first time, please hit like and subscribe below to stay in touch. You can get in contact with me or my wife Heather through the link you can see in the email address next to me or in the show notes below. We'd love to get you involved with the life of our church. We have life groups, and alpha course, prayer meetings, and support in other ways throughout the week that we'd love to have you involved with. We're also meeting in person at 10.30 on Sunday mornings, Arch Road in Hersham. That's 10.30, Sunday mornings, Arch Road in Hersham. It's been really great to get back together in a safe and secure way with all our children's work running and to worship and encourage one another. We'd love to have you with us. Please do get in contact if you'd like help making arrangements for travel, and we'd love to help you to come back to worship in person together. We're here to provide great Christian content to help us all to be courageous in mission, Bible-saturated, Spirit-dependent and loving of others. And to help us focus on that, we're going to have a talk from the Bible now. But first, let's pray. Father, I want to pray that as I come and speak, that your Spirit would speak in power. We're conscious that as we come to you and to your Word, we don't just want to have clever things said to us. We want to have words of power spoken to us by Almighty God. And we pray that your spirit will come now, that you'd challenge us, that you'd heal us, that you'd remake us and make us like Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a series of talks, thinking about the big ideas we need to live by, that we're calling 10 Rules for Life, God's 10 Rules for Life. If you haven't seen the first few of these talks or caught up with them as podcasts, you might want to check them out as they give the background for what I'm going to be speaking about today. But here's my lunchtime summary of today's big rule. To live well, we must be faithful in marriage. To live well, we must be faithful in marriage. To live well, we must be faithful in marriage. But what does that mean? God's ten rules for life are summarised in several places in the Bible, and this is how the seventh commandment is put in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This rule continues and builds on the process that the other rules have been going through of expanding, first of all, and expounding, First of all, how it is that human relationships go wrong. They go wrong because we ignore God and we worship other things. Then we ignore the teaching of God. We don't honour our father and our mother. And then we see the impact of that in the way that we treat one another. So the sixth command, last week's talk, was thinking about violence. We become violent towards one another. And this week we're thinking about how romantic relationships, and particularly marriage and family life, go wrong when sin gets into our heart. This command is easy to state. It takes almost no time at all. You shall not commit adultery. In my view, however, it's the single most difficult command for our culture and our society to keep. Indeed, it's the one command that I wonder whether our society finds the most difficult to accept that provokes the fiercest anger. Why is this? Well, On one hand, it's quite difficult to understand why people should find it difficult to accept this rule. After all, who is it who is willing to come out and say, I approve of adultery? I think adultery is a good thing. But when we get down into the detail, we find that this command cuts against two values that are hugely influential, perhaps more influential than any other in the Western uh, canon of values, in late Western thought, and that's this. First that it is always good to act on my desires and bad to restrain myself from acting upon them. In other words, that if I desire something, it is obviously good that I should do it. Second, that sex is essential to human flourishing and to deny ourselves a sexual relationship we desire is almost by definition harmful. I think there are two values that fairly summarise much of Western ethics in sex in the last 40 years. They are, to put it politely, utter bunk. Complete nonsense. That don't stand up to scrutiny for even a moment. But they are hugely influential and after all, why not? They play to the desire we have that I should get whatever I want. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that it's harmful for them to desire whatever they want? I certainly want to hear that. It sounds great. What we find, though, is that these values, when we come to embrace them, are enormously damaging, both to our individual lives and to our social life. And I think the history of the West in the last 50 years supports that judgment. Family breakdown, single-parent families, uh, abortion, and sexual uh, transmitted infections have skyrocketed in the West. These values have bred literal death. Death to relationships, death to life chances, and physical death. And yet we persist with them. And that brings us to the most problematic uh, aspect of these values, which is they are not how God has created us to be. And the seventh commandment helps us to understand why. So I'm going to look at the background to this rule and what it means for us, and then I'll address some practical consequences. Before I do, I want to say one thing. There may be those watching, indeed I hope there are, whose lives have been touched by relationship breakdown, by the pain of betrayal, or even of having betrayed someone. There may be those whose lives are marked by the fact that their parents let them down and failed to live this out. It may be that there are uh, husbands and wives going through divorce proceedings right now. And if that's you, I want to say to you at the beginning that these words are not spoken with any spirit of condemnation. Each and everything I'm saying today has something to speak to each one of us watching about our own hearts and our own lives. Moreover, there is healing and forgiveness and acceptance in the church and in Jesus Christ for anyone in any situation. Whatever your past is, it doesn't need to define your future. Jesus can make you new and heal you. And he can heal the hurt that you're carrying or that you've caused to others. With that said, we do need to understand something of these things so we can get our thinking right And start to make better choices in the future to live the way Jesus wants us to. Over the last couple of years, I've spent a long time explaining both in writing and in sermons, how the Bible pictures sexual relationships, family life and commitment. I don't have time today to go into the same level of detail I'm going to provide an outline of God's vision for uh, marriage, for relationships, and the proper uh, way that we should understand them. And then I'm going to explore some of how those things go wrong and what we can do about it. I'm only going to have time to do an overview. In all I'm saying, nothing should uh, diminish the value or the role of singleness in Christian life. There is an enormously rich tradition of valuing singleness in the church. Jesus was single. St. Paul was single, for large parts of his ministry at least. St. Augustine was single. The great fathers of the church were often single, and doing so gave them access to enormously fruitful and beneficial and great lives that changed the world, and that can change the world again. So if you're single listening to this, please don't think none of this can speak to you, or that you're in any way less valuable than someone who's married. But marriage presents a particular set of challenges that we do need to think through as a community. And that's what we're going to do now. Three passages in the Bible are particularly important for understanding God's vision for marriage and sexual relationships. First of all, we have the creation narratives. In these stories, we find an archetypal man and woman. A man and woman who, uh, as well as being um, historical figures are standing, in some sense, for the rest of humanity. They they portray us. They are every man and every woman uh, depicted. The way that they relate to each other and God's commands to them show God's vision for, uh, for human flourishing, not only for them, but for all of us. They underpin Christian sexual ethics. So in Genesis 1, we read of the creation of humanity and God's purpose for human relationships. It says this at the end of that chapter. So God created mankind, that is humanity, in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This initial account of God creating human beings shows us his purpose for marriage and relationships. In particular, I want to draw out two things it shows us. Marriage is intended to be fruitful. It's intended to be fruitful. God made men and women so that they can be fruitful and increase in number, so they can have children. Now there are times when human couples come together and for whatever reason, usually biological, they can't have children and that can cause enormous sadness. And if that's your situation, then nothing here should cause you to feel condemned or guilty in any way. But we do need to see that God's design for marriage is designed to be fruitful. That's what we teach in schools. It's the birds and the bees. We know this, that when a husband and wife come together in the normal course of things, they have children. And that's good. That's God's plan for marriage. Second, we see that, that marriage is designed to be a partnership. That men, man and woman, men and women, are equally charged as a team with subduing the earth and caring for it. It doesn't mean that they will do the same jobs. There'd be no point having two of them if they did the same thing all the time. But they are together to work for the, for the care of the world, for the subduing of the world and the managing of it. They're a team, they're a partnership. An equal partnership. So then the Bible moves on to Genesis 2 and we get a different creation narrative that brings out something subtly different in the way that human relationships work. We read in Genesis 2, verse 18, that the Lord God said, "'It's not good for man to be alone.'" I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this story teaches us at least three more things about the way that sex and relationships and marriage are designed to work. Marriage and relationships are designed to be complementary. The man and the woman are designed to complement each other. They fit together. Physically, they fit together. But they're also designed to complement each other in what one has, the other one doesn't have. They have different abilities and strengths. They are to help one another. That's what makes it possible for them to be fruitful and to multiply. Marriage and relationships are designed to be enjoyable. Adam and Eve are created for each other and they feel no shame in each other's presence. They enjoy one another. Fifth, marriage and relationships are designed to be faithful. They aren't just entering into a contract. They become one flesh. They're united to one another. It makes as much sense to say that Eve can leave Adam for another man as it does to say I can cut my arm off and give it to someone else to be their arm. No, it doesn't work that way. They're now one. They were two and they're now one. So in our third passage, the final view of marriage is from St. Paul in Ephesians 5. He writes the way that husbands and wives are to act this out and the spiritual benefits of it. This is what he says, reading from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. So Paul brings out a spiritual dimension to marriage, which we might put like this. Marriage is a sacrament. It's about making each other more like Jesus. It's a way of becoming like Christ as we each, husbands and wives, submit to one another. We submit our interests to those of the other. We pray for them. We use our strength and our ability to help them flourish. So we've looked at six elements for God's vision for human flourishing in marriage and relationships. Marriage should be fruitful. It should be a partnership. It should be complementary. It should be enjoyable. It should be faithful. And it should be sacramental. Adultery happens when we pursue relationships in a way that ignore these values that's what lies behind adultery now obviously on one hand Jesus uh, in one hand adultery is the act of actively sleeping with someone having a sexual relationship with someone who isn't your spouse that's a direct violation of the marriage promises a direct violation of faithfulness But Jesus points out when he deals with this commandment that it encompasses much more than this, that it encompasses each of those other six elements as well. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, adultery is about more than avoiding physical infidelity. Or to put it another way, we can do everything but have sexual relationships with someone else and still be committing adultery. Or at least be committing the behaviour and the heart patterns that lead to adultery. It includes the thought and the heart attitudes that lead us to be unfaithful to our spouse. It encompasses times when we long for the companionship and physical intimacy with someone other than our relationship or uh, other than our husband or our wife. That means it includes fantasizing about physical relationships outside marriage. See, Jesus realizes that adultery and relationship breakdown don't begin with physical infidelity It begins with breakdown in other areas. Adultery begins with a lack of friendship or partnership in marriage, with indulging fantasies and desires about others, with the absence of communities and friendships that include those not presently involved in romantic relationships. Adultery begins in the heart. And that's where it needs to be dealt with. So practically then, what does this mean? Well, I think it calls for two types of response. First of all, we need to stop doing some things and we need to start doing others. Stop doing some things and we need to start doing others. If we're going to live our best lives, the lives that God desires for us. So let's start with the negative things, the things we need to stop or be aware of. We live in an age when there are lots of obstacles to flourishing relationships. Lots of obstacles to living our relationships out in the way that God pictures them that will bring joy and satisfaction to us. We need to recognise them and be ruthless in dealing with them. Here are some examples, and I apologise if this list contains things that people find distasteful, but that's real life. Pornography. Pornography is one. It directly leads to that lust, that desire, that fantasy in our hearts. We live in an age where any of us can have access to pornography at literally any time in any place. It is unprecedented, it is dangerous, and it has to stop. Porn is addictive, corrosive to relationships, and hugely destructive for our spiritual lives. So that's porn, and you might think, well, I don't consume porn in the sense of Googling explicit websites, but I do watch the TV and and read Stuff in books or on the internet or uh, in magazines that are not poor in a traditional sense but portray unhelpful narratives about life. They might lead us to objectify women or men, they might be tempting us with titillating ideas that we're just looking forward to that next scene in the drama when it just pushes things a little bit further and we can have that trigger to our imaginations going on and on and on. Or it might be that that particular program or those particular books portrays a narrative that leads us to believe that relationships are easy and driven by constant desire. Or that if our relationships are not easy or we don't feel constant desire, then we should get out and find a new relationship. These narratives are nonsense. They are ludicrous in real life. They are destructive to our happiness Relationships require work. Anything worthwhile does. Relationships require sacrifice. Anything worthwhile requires sacrifice. They require self-denial. Anything worthwhile requires self-denial. There's no lasting satisfaction if we're not willing to accept that. And that means we need to challenge the narratives we come across on TV or in books. And where those narratives are inescapable, we might need to think about whether we want to carry on watching those programs or reading those books. Third, we might have unhelpful other relationships. Is there a person, particularly a person of the opposite sex, who your relationship is closer to than your spouse? Or who you find yourself working harder to make laugh? Or you find yourself having a more emotional connection with I want to gently say that relationship needs to be scaled back. The person we should be closest to is our spouse. And if we are not, we need to do something about that, not find solace in a different relationship. Finally, overwork. That says particularly in this area of the country, in Surrey, in the orbit of Greater London, we live in a culture that has an idolatrous worship of work. If we work all the time to the neglect of our spouse or our family, then we are setting the stage for adultery. We're breaking five or six of those values we talked about, of enjoyment, of partnership, of sacramentality, often a physical union. If we're just too tired to sleep with our wife or our husband, then we're setting the stage for adultery, either in our lives or in theirs. And we need to be clear about what this requires of us. It's not easy. It might mean we need to take a demotion at work. It might mean we need to say no to a promotion. Or we need to be willing to disappoint our boss because our family, our spouse, is more important than they are. So they're the negative things. Now I want to talk about the positive things. What can we do to build a culture that that values marriage and relationships? Well, First, we can invest in relationships. Invest in your marriage, invest in your partnership. Spend time together, regular planned date nights. Pray together. Find mutual activities you enjoy together. Sleep together. That might not be something you expect to hear a pastor say, but we need to plan, married couples need to plan, to be physically intimate with one another. And then they've got to set their faces and jolly well do it. It's what God has appointed for the flourishing of our relationships. None of these things will just happen. We have to plan for them. Invest in hobbies and friendships. It's no good simply trying to avoid TV or avoid the internet or avoid something else or avoid work. We have to invest in other things that nourish and develop our lives both together and as individuals. Fill your life with things that fulfil you. Include single people in your life as a family. We as a church are a family and no one should be excluded from that. If I had one criticism of romantically engaged couples it's that they become hugely focused on themselves. There's a kind of cliche that uh, goes around that the first thing that happens when you meet a girl is that she gets rid of all your mates. And it's but it's funny because it's true. And it might be funny for those who are in their 20s, but actually as we get older, if married couples and those in relationships don't take seriously the wider family of the church and our responsibilities to develop friendships across the church and including each other in our lives, then actually we're causing a problem for other people and potentially for ourselves as well. Draw close to God as individually and vitally as couples. Pray together. Talk about the Bible together. Come to worship together. It's a huge part of Christian marriage. Finally, if your relationship is struggling, get help. Don't be embarrassed to get help. If something is worth doing, it's worth fixing. Your marriage is worth fixing the pain and the embarrassment of seeing a relationship counselor or coming and seeing me or talking together with a mutual friend is nothing compared to the pain and the destruction that comes from divorce or an affair don't do it get help it's not a, a sign of weakness it's a sign of strength i want to finish by offering a note of comfort for those whose lives have fallen short and a note to a challenge to us as a community if you're carrying guilt or shame or pain, if you're struggling with lust and addiction or pornography, if you're having or have had an affair, then don't despair. You can be forgiven, you can be healed, and you can be set free. God is calling you to stop, to repair your relationships and to follow Jesus. But you're not alone. We are here to help you, to love you, to support you, and to ask you to help us. To live well, we must be faithful in marriage. Please stay tuned, we have communion coming up.